Welcome to the Citizens Youth Podcast. Citizens Youth is a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church in Vancouver, Washington. Citizens is a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit us online at nwgospel.com forward slash citizens. Right underneath, probably you at the moment, is like a program. It's a, your notes right there. Evelyn, hold that up high and proud. Right there. Everyone grab that underneath your own seated self. Grab your notes. Grab a pen. If you don't have a Bible, grab them from the back. If you do and your neighbor doesn't, beat them with your Bible. I mean, uh, graciously ask them to go get a Bible. That's what I meant. <laughs> Guys, it's supposed to be summer. What is happening right now? It's true to form. Yes, my note takers. I told them that the rule of the front row is you have to take notes. I'm watching you, seventh graders, eighth graders. Wow, man, life moves so quickly. It's supposed to be summer, but, you know, uh, apropos to the Northwest, it doesn't turn summer until after the 4th of July, which is tomorrow. Yes. Are you guys doing anything fun for the 4th of July? Will anybody be exploding things? Will anybody be eating things? Nice. Um, my, household, uh, we, my household throws two parties a year. One is on the 4th of July, and it's for waffles. This year, sponsored by Chick-fil-A. Um, and on the Christmas Eve, we always throw a party. But, so that's what I'm doing tomorrow, is I will be eating waffles at 9 a.m., so... Be jealous. It's okay. <laughs> Waffle time. Guys, uh, summertime, I was just talking to my friend Olivia a couple days ago, and I was saying that I really wish I had taken advantage of summertime when I was your age. Like, just hours of nothing to do but everything to do, right? You could do whatever you want for hours at a time, and instead you sit on your bums and watch TV. I know you. Anyway, so back in my day, um, when it was summertime, uh, my family grew up with another, like, really good family together, like, church families, you know, um, and we had three siblings, three kids, and their family had three kids, um, but both of our families worked, so they had, like, they had a single dad who had the three kids, and then my, both of my parents worked, and so they were just like, well, let's just throw them all in a house together and hope they don't die, Okay. So they would throw all of my siblings together and their siblings and like, here's the house, there's food in the fridge, please be alive when we come back. And so there was two like summers I remember of just all day long, just hanging out with those guys all week. Um, they lived in Camas, any Camasonians in here? Yeah, I almost said Camasites, but that sounds like parasites and that sounds like a bad thing. <laughs> um, so they lived up on a hill in Camas. Um, near the paper mill, so like we could walk to Top Burger for some ice cream. Yes, or we'd walk downtown, which is much cooler now than it was when I was a kid. Um, but their house was the best because they had not only, wait for it, a trampoline, and I'm talking about like the real trampolines, you know, not the ones with the lame fence around it. What happened to trampolines? They put fences around them, right? No fence. You fly off that trampoline, you're going. You deserve it. And the actual, like, real springs, you know, like, not the weird elastic stuff. 
what is happening to trampolines? Yes, no, real, it could kill you or break yourself trampoline, right? Um, and then they also had a swimming pool, like a, it was not a circle, a rectangle with rounded sides. Is that a shape? <laughs> it's a, you know, like a rectangle with rounded sides. It's the best I can describe it. And sometimes, you know, we would pair the two together, you know, like jumpy jump, splashy splash, right? Um, I don't recommend that. Um, but one of the games that we would play every summer for hours is the one and only Marco Polo. How many of you have ever played Marco Polo? Is this before your time? Yeah, okay. Does anybody know what this is from? Yes, okay. I don't like, I rarely ever watch commercials because nowadays, why? Like, why would you watch commercials nowadays when everything's, like, recorded? But I always know when it's a Geico commercial because it's hysterical, right? So they're playing Marco Polo with Marco Polo, right? I, I thought it was hilarious. He's off in the corner like, uh, excuse me. It's my favorite. Anyway, so we play Marco Polo as a kid. And you know how the game works, right? There's one person who's it, perhaps Marco. I don't know if that's what actually you call it. Someone who's it, and then they go, Marco. Right, they go, Marco, and their job is trying to find somebody, right, Marco? Marco. He cheated. He said, Marco, dang, right? And so you're blindfolded or closed eyes, and you're walking around, and you're saying, Marco, and you're trying to, like, Micah, I saw you, and you're trying to tag people, right? You've played this before. Yes. Um, So one time, we were playing Marco Polo, and we're in the pool, and, you know, we were doing the Marco Marco, right, and it's like, I can't get anybody, I'm it, by the way, and I'm like trying to get around, I'm trying to find somebody, and I can't get them, and I'm still like, Marco, thank you, and their voices keep getting like quieter, and quieter, and quieter, I'm like, where are they going, right, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, Marco, and there's no polo, and I'm like, what happened, Marco, no polo. And I, like, open my eyes, and they're gone. Gone. I'm like, where did everybody go? And I found them inside eating lunch. I'm like, what? It was, like, lunchtime. They decided to leave me. I was left alone. I was forsaken in the pool, right? I was left alone. And uh, that's, that's my story of being forsaken, playing Marco Polo. But I think sometimes in our lives, right, we know what it feels like to be left alone to be forsaken. Sometimes maybe it's with a group of friends, like you're super tight with a group of people and then suddenly you're not and you're like, I don't know what happened, but I don't really talk to them anymore. Or maybe people who you thought had your back are suddenly like turning against you or I don't know, maybe you're in a team of people and now like it's awkward there. Not only do we know what it feels like to be forsaken by other people, but I think in some ways we know this feeling of maybe we're playing Marco Polo with God. You know, like we're trying to figure this out. We're like, I don't know how to live life. I'm just a teenager. So I'm just going to walk around, Marco, Marco. (laughs) And we're trying to find some like meaning. We're trying to find some purpose in life. And we're trying to find like, God, like, where are you? Like, do you hear me? Can you hear me screaming your name? Can you hear me calling for you? And we feel like we're, we're looking for him in the dark. And we know what this feeling is like. And tonight, we're starting a new series, as you know. 
in Psalm 22 about being forsaken. What do we do when we feel forsaken? What do we do when we feel like um, we have been left alone? We're wandering around with no direction. So this week, um, we're going to dive right into Psalm 22. And this psalm is going to ask the questions that I think if we've not asked verbally, um, we're going to ask, we've asked internally. Like, God, where are you? God, like, will you ever forsake me? Like, God, would you ever, would you ever leave me alone? Would you ever not be there to help me when I call out for you? Would you ever leave me? And so Psalm 22 is going to ask these questions for us. It's going to, it's going to like echo a lot of the aches in our heart, but it's also going to point us to a greater hope. And so tonight, here we go. We are diving into Psalm 22. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up to Psalm 22. You're going to want to be looking at this throughout the night. I'm going to open my Bible too. Psalm 22. If you are new to opening your Bible, it's Psalm is almost like right in the middle. My middle schoolers know I cannot do anything without my crusty Bible. So here I am with my crusty Bible. Um, so, as we open up this psalm, you will notice right here at the top, it is a psalm that we actually get some instructions, right? We get a little bit of context, we get some instructions for what's going on, and so it's kind of odd, but he says, to the choir master, so the music leader, so it'd be like if I was writing a song, and I'd be like, to Max, please sing it this way, right? So, to the choir master, uh, according to the doe of the dawn, Nobody knows what that is. Right? It's a melody to a song that this is supposed to be sung to. I would imagine it's kind of majestic. Like imagine like a glowing meadow early in the morning and there's like glistening dew. Is that the word? Right? And this like majestic doe comes out of the fields. I, I don't know. This is all. This is what I imagine. Anyway, a psalm of David. So we have an author here. David is writing this psalm. Um, for those of you who don't know, David um, was once a shepherd boy with the sheepy sheeps, but he was called to be a king over Israel. And he's one of the greatest kings of Israel. And so our author is David, and here's what we know about David. Um, David was an anointed king. So a couple weeks ago, Sam talked about like when a king, when they put a king over Israel, they literally just dump a bunch of oil on their head. Like, that's so messy. Then I have to take a shower. It's, ugh, it's lame. But they do. They anoint the king with oil. So, you know, Samuel comes to, his name is Samuel. I don't know why I said it like that. Samuel goes to Jesse, who's David's dad, and they do, like, serious Cinderella status. Like, do you have any other daughters that have feet? And it's not what he says. But he's like, do you have any other sons that could be king? I'm like, well, there's this weird, like, small kid out in the field watching the sheep. I'm like, bring him to me. And that is who Samuel anoints as king. So we know that David is the anointed king. He is the beloved. Did you know that David's name actually means beloved? Yeah. So the letters in David's name um, is the same as the beloved. So David is the beloved. He is the beloved one. Um, he's the beloved one of God. And lastly there we see he is a son of God. David is called a son of God. So this is our author. And these are things you need to know. You need to know who's singing the song. And I need you to remember this. It's going to be a test at the end. I have gummies in my office if you win. I don't know if I should offer that. A lot of middle schoolers just got really excited. 
Okay, uh, what else do we know about this? Uh, my tribes people and middle schoolers, you know what this is, right? We've been studying the Psalms. This is a? Yes, this is a lament. So what is a lament? Um, how many of you have ever lamented? Have you ever poured out your soul in tears? Yes. Uh, well, when we're talking about a lament in the Psalms, uh, a lament has three parts, okay? So it's a cry for help. It's usually this question of like, God, why? And then it goes to a description of what this author is suffering. And the crazy thing about a psalm of lament is it always ends with a praise. It always ends with praise for God. And so this week, um, we're going to stay in part one. We're going to be in the cry for help this week. And we're going to move through the next two chunks in the weeks to come. So without further ado... We're going to read the first 11 verses of Psalm 22, and we're going to dive into it. So we're looking at David's appeal, his, his cry, his questioning of God, and what does he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I? I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. All who see me, they mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their head. I really want to know what that looks like. Like, <laughs> no idea. But it's very mockery. Uh, I lost track. They, they make mouths at me and wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. I'll let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you... Are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you, I was cast from birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Happy Psalm today, right? Man, what do we do with this text? How do we handle something like this? The first part of our psalm is sandwiched, this first chunk, this cry, is sandwiched between a question and an observation. The question, God, where are you? Where are you? And the observation is, when God's supposed to be near, actually trouble is near, and God feels far. And what am I supposed to do with that? So that is our question today. What do we do when trouble feels closer than God? What do we do when our trouble feels closer than God? I don't know if I have. When David is going, he's singing this song, the way he speaks and talks about God is going to inform us on how we answer that question of what do we do when trouble feels near. And David is going to remind us to remember the nearness of God. He's going to call us to remember the nearness of God. And by the end of this, we're not only going to know what we should remember, 
But we're going to see, like, real tangible evidence that God actually is faithful to be near to us. And so let's jump back into David's first question. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from my words of groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. You can just hear the desperation in David's prayer. I don't know if anything has ever happened to you in your life where you've had to pray like that. I pray that something like that doesn't happen to you. But inevitably, there are moments in our lives that we come to a prayer like that. We see that David is asking, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Like, can you hear me? Are you too far away to hear my voice? Like, where are you? He pictures himself. He says, why are you so far? He pictures himself, like, way too far from God. That doesn't matter how loud he cries or how much he shouts, that God is just never going to hear him. He could cry as loud as he wants, but yet God seems so far away that God's not going to hear him. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I talked about the time when I was running and I rolled my ankle real bad. Right? I don't know if you remember that story. Well, the very first time I rolled my ankle, I was actually like eight years old. And my house growing up um, is right up against a park. Some of you have been to my house still and you know that. Um, And so it was super common. Our fence was like really short in our backyard. So it was really common for my brothers and I. We just hopped the fence. We'd go to the park. We'd hang out. Um, uh, So one day we were, we hopped the fence. We went to the park. We're hanging out. And my brothers are playing basketball at the basketball court. And I'm like running around the structures and things, and uh, it's time to go in for dinner, and so I'm like, oh, I gotta go, and so I'm like, I don't know, I was on the roof of the structure or something, but then I come down, that's not actually the part that was dangerous, I was going down the slide, (laughs) yes, you can injure yourself on the slide, beware, so I was going down the slide, and I like caught my ankle funky, and it just rolled it, like completely sprained it, and I'm like laying in a heap at the bottom of the like slide, and I'm like, ah, (laughs) ah, and I'm like, Justin, Derek, these are my brothers. I'm like, help, help. And I'm like, I don't hear anything. This is like Marco Polo all over again. Um, and I can't, I can't hear anybody. And, like, they had already left. I'm like, maybe if I scream loud enough, they'll hear me from my house. They did not. I yelled and I yelled and I cried and I yelled. And nobody came. And I had to hop my way back home. Man. Hopping a fence in one leg is hard. To some extent, to a times 10 extent, this is kind of what the psalmist feels. Like help is so far away that it doesn't matter how long I shout, how loud I shout, he can't hear me. He says, not only did he cry a few times, but look, he's crying by day and by night, from morning to evening, in every place in between. He has no rest. His mind can't settle. He's crying out for God. And you can just hear the desperation in his voice. Like the shouting where like your voice goes hoarse and then you eventually like lose your voice. You can just see the tears running down his face and his red eyes. And we think the anointed, beloved son of God is desperate. He's alone. He's been forsaken. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like God was too far away to hear your cries? Have you ever felt like you're like sending out prayers into a void that doesn't land anywhere? That he doesn't hear us. 
before we continue this psalm, I want to see one thing in these lines. And it's how David addresses God. More than once in this psalm, David still calls him my God. Even though David feels forsaken, he feels left alone, he will not forsake God. He says he's my God. When you put the word my in front of something, it changes completely, right? Oh, there's a dog. Oh, there's my dog. No. Right? <laughs> I just was imagining my puppy right there. I just really like him. Uh, or like, hey, there's some, so-and-so's brother. Oh, like, that's my brother. Or like, hey, there's your friend. Like, God, there's my friend. Right? The word my just changes everything. And David, he calls God my God. He's not just that God. He's my God. And so even when David feels um, isolated, he is reminding himself of the nearness of God. So we remember the nearness of God even when, even when we feel forsaken. But David continues to remind himself of something else. Let's look at this next. He says, yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me and make mouths at me and wag their heads. <laughs> he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And these opening lines here, there's a flip in the middle if you probably saw it. In these opening lines here, David is reminded that he knows that God is near his people. He says, I know that God dwells with his people. I mean, this image that he gives here is like that the praises of Israel, like the blessings that they send up to him, he's like literally sitting in them. He's dwelling in the praises of Israel. And then like their fathers trusted, look at this. He knows that God's people, the people that God is with equals those who trust in God. He's like, I know this. God, where are you? I know that you're with your people. I know that you're with those who trust in you. And he's reminding himself of all the stories. He says, they trust in you, delivered them. They cried to you, and they were rescued. They were not put to shame. That phrase, not put to shame, means they were not disappointed. They were not disappointed in trusting in God. God came through for them. And so he remembers the story, like sitting on his, his mom's knee, and she's like, oh, son, remember Abraham. And he, sorry, I went Irish. <laughs> and he thought he couldn't have a son, but God gave him a son. He says, oh, remember the children of Israel when there was famine, but God brought them food and water in the wilderness. He says, oh, don't forget Moses when Egypt was chasing down the people of God to squash them. He helped Moses lead them through a river, through the Red Sea. It's like, oh, remember, God is always faithful. He sings a song like we sing today of like, you've never failed me. And I know you're never going to fail me. He knows <clears throat> that God is with his people, that he always comes through. He's reminding himself of the stories of his people. And I kind of like look to us and say like, where are ways that God has provided for us? 
do you write down or remember or recall the ways that God's provided for you and I, for us? There's a reason why we do uh, stories. How many of you have been part of a stories night? Post-camp, welcome back. We will do another stories night. And these are opportunities where we get to rehearse. We get to practice the faithfulness of God. There's a reason why um, there are people in this room who are older than you. Look around. Yes, there are some gray hairs in here, or someday to be gray, right? There are older people in this room, and here's why. Because they've lived longer than you, which means they've collected way more evidence of, like, God is faithful. Do you know I know God is faithful? Because he did this. Do you know I know God is faithful? Because he helped me here. And together our stories collect. Like when I hear a story of, like, one of my sisters that they're like, man, I, I didn't know what to do. I thought God, like, didn't care about me. But in this way, he showed me that he loves me. And now I know that. I'm like, yes, I can hold on to that truth. I know that God is faithful. So, so he's remembering that God is with his people. But then he takes a turn. Look at this. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. How many of you, have you ever said that about yourself? I am a worm. You might, I don't know, use that as the next insult. Don't insult people. You're a worm. <laughs> a worm. What does this mean? He says, I know that God's near to those who trust him, but me, like, I don't feel near God. If he's near the people, he's like, I'm, I'm less than a person. I'm like less than the dirt. I'm like, a, I'm a worm, right? I, I'm so far from God. I mean, compare the images here. Look, he says, God, you are holy. Like, you are high and above and exalted. You are so above this dirty earth. You would never scuff your shoes on this nasty floor of the earth. You're so high above. But me, I'm just a little worm in the dirt. I eat dirt. This distance is huge. This massive distance between God and him. And what's crazy is that this distance is what you and I experience, what you and I feel because of sin, because of the fall. You realize the image of God, a.k.a. mankind, were created to dwell with God and with sin and brokenness, that distance is as vast as a king to a worm. There's nothing the same there. And David, the beloved son of God, the anointed one is saying, man, I'm supposed to be one of God's people, but I'm being treated like a worm. Look, they are mocking me. They're despising me. I'm scorned by mankind. These people who say they trust God are saying, you're not part of this. You're not part of the people of God. You're not a part of the people who God is with. More than that, Look at this last line here. Remember, what did David's name mean? The beloved. Look at this last line here. This is like the insult of all insults. This is the sting. He goes, they go, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so he trusts in the Lord. Okay, so let God deliver him. Right? Oh, yeah, if he trusts in the Lord, God will deliver him. Oh, yeah, let God rescue him if he trusts in the Lord. For he delights in him. They're totally making fun of who David is. David is the beloved, the one that God has delighted in. In another psalm that David wrote as king, he declares this. He says, God brought me into a broad place, a safe place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
David says, I know I'm safe in God because God delights in me. And they're saying, uh-huh, yeah, God delights in you. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see if God rescues you because he delights in you. Man, have you ever felt forsaken by the people who are supposed to be there for you? Like David's supposed to be a part of the people of God, and they've completely turned their backs on him. Or maybe some of these taunts that the people have you felt in your own head of like, dude, if God really loved you, your life would not look the way it does right now. Dude, if God really loved you, you would not be experiencing that. Oh, yeah, if God loved you, you'd be rescued by that, from that by now. These taunts are alive in in David. And so he says, God, where are you? I know that you're near your people, but I feel forsaken. He goes to remember one more thing. Look at our last couple of verses in Psalm here today. He looks to remember one more thing. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you as I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there's none to help. He's asking God, where are you? I know you're with your people, so why don't I feel you near? But then he says, I know you've been near to me. I know you've been near to me. I mean, check out this, like, image. Why are we, like, blushing and cringing at these words, right, in this sentence? Because it's so intimate. This picture of this, like, baby coming out of its mother and being in this world. Like, it's so personal. It's so present. And he says, that's how close I've been to God. It's like, it's this crazy picture of, like, God literally taking him out of his mother. He's, like, right there. He's there at the first breath. He can count the first breath. He knows what the very first cry sounded like. Like, God was there. He's that close to David. And and guys, like, and gals, God knows you and I that closely. Like before you can even remember that you are a human being, God knows your first breath. He knew your first cry. He loves you like a mother. And this is how David, the son of God, is feeling. And look, uh, it says on you, I was cast from my birth. When babies are born, the little baby, the little baby, um, our new mothers are not in here. I had hoped someone would bring a baby today. Um, it's too late for babies. <clears throat> um, when a baby's born, most of you have no concept of this. Some of you may know this intimately. But most of you have no concept of this. When a baby is born, they immediately put it on the mother. Right? They want a skin contact. They put it on the mom or if uh, the mom is having complications, usually the dad is shirtless and they put the baby on the, on the dad. And it's that that's that moment of bonding, that connectedness of, like, they are, they're connected to their family. It's a really crazy moment. Like, childbirth is insane. I've never, like, experienced it, but just the concept of it and, like, all the babies that have been born in my life, I'm like, this is a crazy, radical miracle of God. But look at this phrase. He says, on you, God, I was cast from my birth. It's like David came into the world, and he wasn't handed to his mom. He wasn't handed to his dad. He was handed to God. Like, his relationship with God is that tight. His relationship with God 
is that connected. The Son of God and God are so closely connected. And this image of a baby, like imagine a baby, like they are completely in need. They cannot survive without their mothers. They're dependent on them. And their closeness with that life source is so important. And David says, this is, this is how close I've been to you. He said, from the very beginning, I've trusted you. You made me trust you from the beginning. You've been my God from the beginning. I have, I've been the son of God from the very beginning. But yet, our last verse here, he still says, be not far from me. He still feels far from God. For trouble is near and there's none to help. Some of you know what it feels like to be close to God. You know, you have an experience at camp or like when you first decide, yes, God, I want to follow you. You know what it feels like to be near. When you like open your Bible and you're like, this is amazing. When you pray and you're like, I feel it in my soul. Or you sing that song and you're like, yes, Lord. Right? You know what it feels like to be near God. And then you don't feel near. That's such a hard moment to experience as a Christian. When you've been near God and suddenly you feel far from God. And you ask God, where are you? And so here we have David. He's feeling these exact same things. He's saying, God, where are you? I know that you're near to those who trust you. I know that you've been near to me. So where are you now? Why don't I feel you? Why can't I feel your nearness? As we talk about this word forsaken races, why have you forsaken me? If you look it up in uh, the... the uh, Bible, right, you just do a quick word search and all the times it says forsaken. You'll see a couple things. You'll see God promising his people, I'm with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says, I will be with your people. You will never be alone. But then he also says, if you forsake me, I will forsake you. You're like, wait, which is it, God? Is it you'll never forsake me or if I forsake you, you forsake me? And we see that there's this concept of those who forsake God, for those who leave him, who chase other gods, whatever that may be, whether that's wealth or reputation or status or love, they're chasing these other gods. He says, you you forsake me, I will forsake you. But how are both true? How will God never leave us or forsake us? But then also... We feel that distance, right, of the king to the worm when sin enters our hearts. And there's this crazy radical story of the Bible. Like the whole Bible is about this. You should read all of it. The whole Bible is about how God is taking rebels on the run who don't want to be with God. And he makes it possible for them to come home. And so... On his own terms, he says, you have forsaken me, but I will bring you back home. I will redeem you. I will not forsake you, though you leave me. And this is something we don't get. When people forsake us, you better know we forsake them back. We don't want anything to do with them. When people injure us, gone. (laughs) They're out of my life. We have been enemies to God. And yet he says he won't forsake us. And how does he do that? We're going to close in one more passage tonight. But I want you to know, as we read this psalm, remember, this is the psalm of David, right? He's the anointed. He's the, what does his name mean? 
What does his name mean? He's the beloved, and he is the son of God. And this song is being sung by that person. But we're going to see that what David sings, we actually hear from the mouth of Jesus, who is the capital T, anointed king, who is the capital the, beloved. He is the son of God. And Jesus quotes the very words of this psalm as he dies on the cross. So we're going to jump to Matthew 27. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to keep, like, a finger in both spots. Because if you, like, highlight all the lines that Matthew 27 um, repeats out of Psalm 22, it's quite radical. Like, these gospel writers are doing something on purpose. They are literally quoting this entire psalm in this passage. I've highlighted pieces here so you can see that. So let's read the story. He says, when they came to a place called Golgotha, so at this point, Jesus has been whipped, right? He's bleeding. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's bleeding from everywhere. He tried to carry a cross up a hill, but he's way too weak. He's lost too much blood. He can't carry the cross up a hill, so uh, the Simon is carrying the cross for him. Um, and so they're going up to this place called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. And they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall. And but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among, among them by casting lots. Spoiler alert, tune in next week for the importance of that line. <laughs> then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Then the two robbers with him, one on the right and one on the left, they're dying with him. <laughs> and those who passed by derided him. Look at that wagging their heads. Have you heard about head wagging earlier today? We don't know what it looks like, but the psalm is talking about that, being wagging their heads. Oops, went too far. And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from that cross. They say he saved others. Why can he not save himself? He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe in him. Look at this. Look at this. It's the same line. Oh, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. Now if he desires him, right, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. They are mocking the very identity of Jesus, the beloved, the son of God. And they said, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled, I guess if that's the last thing you're going to do with your life, they also reviled him in the same way. And now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, El Eli, lemma shabachnathni, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Jesus is quoting this very psalm. It's like he's opening up the words of the psalm and saying, all of this is about me. You want to hear a story about someone who was forsaken? Look at my life. And it ends this way. And one of them at at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Insane, right? And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I can't even imagine what that would be like. And when the centurion and those who were with him over Jesus, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The anointed one, the beloved, the Son of God. Jesus was the one because he bore our sins, felt the absolute distance of God to man. That king to a worm, he felt that so strongly. He bore our sins. He was, Jesus was the one who cried out in pain and groaned as they tortured him on the cross. Jesus was the one who was not saved from his death on the cross. Jesus was the son of God, the very son of God, the one who knew him from the beginning and yet was treated like a stranger, like not even a part of the people of God. Jesus was mocked and he was scorned and he was despised. He was treated as less than a human, like a worm to be trampled on. Jesus was taunted. They say, they claimed, they they questioned his claim about being the son of God. They question his claim about being the one that God delighted in. Jesus is the one who knew God so intimately because he was God. And Jesus was forsaken so that you and I may never be forsaken. When God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you, he has to take care of that gap that sin causes between us and God. We deserve to be the worm that's trampled on and forsaken. But Jesus was forsaken. He felt that distance ultimately between us and God so that we might never be forsaken. God will never leave you or forsake you because Jesus was forsaken for you. We never have to worry about whether God has forgotten us or if we will not hear him or if he will not hear us because of what Jesus has done for us. Since the fall, nothing has clung closer to us than sin, right? Like we try to get rid of our sin. We try to shake it off. We try to like hide it. We try to like bury it in the ground, but nothing sticks closer to us than sin and nothing is farther away or harder to reach than God. But Jesus stepped into that gap between us. While we're searching, while we're playing Marco Polo with God, right, while we're searching and we're looking for what we call truth or what we call meaning or we call purpose in life, we're really searching for God. And while we're crying out Marco Polo, God says, in Jesus I am with you. We're looking for God. And though our sin created a distance between us and God, Jesus experienced that distance so that we don't have to be far from God. So along with David, Jesus calls us to remember the nearness of God. He calls us to remember the nearness of God. And how do we do that? We remember what Jesus has done. We remember the nearness of God by remembering what Jesus has done. We experience the nearness of God by resting in what Jesus has done for us. 
So I, I urge you, remember the nearness of God. He is with his people. He is with you. And he's made that possible through Jesus. Maybe you read pieces of the psalm and you thought, yeah, that's me. Like, I know what it feels like to be forsaken by people who I thought were family. I know what it feels like to be left alone. I know what it feels like to, to send up prayers and feel like they're not heard. You have a Savior who knows exactly what that feels like. He felt that. He experienced that on the cross. We're not alone. But ultimately, though we experience trouble and trial and forsakenness in this life, we will ultimately never be forsaken. Ultimately, those of us who trust in God are with him forever. That nearness of God that we are searching for, where God is reunited with man, we see that in Jesus. If you're in here tonight and you feel far from God, I encourage you to remember what Jesus has done. That Jesus brings you near to God. All of the things that make you and I a worm, right? All the dirt in our lives, Jesus is taking care of. He, bear, he bore our sins. And he brings us near to God. He makes it possible for us to be with God. We have a Savior who was forsaken for our sins that we could be near God. And we can truly experience God's forsakenness. One of my prayers at the end of this was like, God, help us to believe that the nearness of you is better than anything else we can experience in this life. Because we know what it's like to be forsaken. We know what it's like to be left out, to be left alone. As I tell, as I think about stories in my childhood, a lot of my childhood was uh, being isolated, right? In the sense of like, my older brothers were always doing stuff and I was left alone. I was never cool enough for the other girls in school or youth group. I was always forsaken. I don't know if that's your story too. But there's this, this hope, right? This treasure that none of that matters. Every time I've tried to chase something to make me feel a part of something, it never satisfies. It never feels good enough. And I keep chasing and I keep chasing and I keep chasing. But when I rest and what Jesus has done, the one who will never forsake me, who is better than anything I can acquire in this life, better than any reputation or better than any accomplishment, better than any station, when I, when I rest in that, that God will never forsake me, it's enough. It's enough. So if you feel far from God today, remember that he's near to you. Much like how a mom hears the cry of a newborn baby, God hears your cries. You don't have to yell that loud, and he will hear you tonight. So tonight, as we move into response, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Um, but the prayer I would encourage you to pray is, Lord, would you be near me? Lord, would you be near me? God, would you remind me of what Jesus has done to bring me near? Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for 
not only your word that shows us the truth, God, but we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you for the forsakenness that he felt for us, that we may never feel that forsaken. God, I thank you that we can trust in your faithful and true promise that you will never leave us, that you made it possible for us to be with you. God, that you would never abandon us, that even when we hated you, even when we were running from you, even when we had wanted nothing to do with you, we didn't care anything about you, Lord, you chased us down. God, you made it possible for us to come home. God, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you will be faithful to bring us near. And so, Lord, I pray for the citizens in this room. God, I pray for those of us who feel far from God, who feel like the psalmist, that they're crying out with no answer, that they're shouting and shouting and their voice just goes hoarse and we wonder, God, are you listening? God, I pray, God, that you would feel near to them, Lord. I pray, God, that you would remind them of what you have done in Jesus. That it doesn't matter uh, where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter even what you're doing right now. That God will still take us back. God, I pray that you would help us to, to cast these things on you. Lord, help us to confess the ways that we have been creating a gap between us and you. God, help us to confess the sin that clings so closely, Lord, and we thank you that Jesus has already taken care of it. We thank you that you bring us near. So, Lord, we, we rest in you. We remember that you are near to us. We thank you that Jesus has made it possible. And no matter how we feel tonight, we say, God, thank you. Thank you for knowing me.